We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king. Building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. 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 It's our hope this Christmas season that we will grow uh, in our ability to confess our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we do as Christians, is it not? That's, that's the essential element of who we are as the people of God, the new covenant people of God. We are Christians. We are people who confess Jesus Christ. And certainly, if we're confessing, if we're saying the same thing uh, about Jesus Christ, if we're making that confession, we need to understand what are we confessing? What is it that we believe? And it's our goal then, over last week and then this week and the following week, uh, to, to just spend some time in God's Word, reflecting on this statement that we've just heard and that we talked about last week, uh, and then going to the Word of God uh, to just dig a little bit deeper in understanding who Jesus is. We said, essentially, the, the expression that can sum it up is that he's God made flesh. That he is God who has taken on flesh. There's a statement in uh, the, the uh, statement that is given. There's one expression here at the bottom of the second paragraph. Uh, in fact, you all just scrolled that up, didn't you? Maybe take that back down. And if you have that slide ready, would you just put that up and lead that, that slide up for us? I'm calling an audible here, so I appreciate you guys. Uh, but on the end of the second paragraph there, it, it says, he's truly God, and he became truly man. Two natures in one person. That's, that's kind of where we want to spend our time today, thinking about that statement. Truly God, he became truly man. Two natures in one person. The book of Philippians this morning, if you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Philippians chapter 2, a familiar passage. The thing that we know about the New Testament, and I've said it many times, is that it is an occasional book. And what we mean by that uh, is, is that the letters of the New Testament are written upon certain occasions. There are certain things that are happening in the life of these people, in the life of this, these churches, uh, and, and Paul or whoever is writing that particular letter is writing into that scenario. So, so the New Testament writers aren't simply sitting down to say, uh, let me just give you 
a, a full delineated doctrine of Christ. So I'm going to write the letter on the doctrine of Christ. I'm going to tell you everything that you need to know. Now, they, they give us the doctrine, they give us the teaching, but it always comes uh, in, in an occasional letter dealing with a particular problem. Well, Paul was calling the church at Philippi to a, a life of humility, to consider others more important than yourselves. And it's in that context then that he begins to expound upon Jesus Christ. He's pointing to Jesus Christ as the supreme example that we are to follow. He's saying, let, let the mind of Christ, this mind of humility, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count that as something to be grasped, but, but that he emptied himself. Let's just read the passage rather than me trying to uh, give you snippets of it here and there. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We're, we're not really going to dive into that practical application this morning, but just don't lose sight of that. That's what he's calling us to this morning as well, is this kind of love, this full accord and being of one mind. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, that's what we always do, we think about our, our own interests, but instead also on the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Curios Christos, Jesus is Lord. We're essentially going to have kind of two main points this morning and and uh, the, it's not very well outlined, I don't think. But, but essentially, first, we want to just contemplate that idea that, that Jesus is truly God and that he became truly man, truly God. He became truly man, two natures in one person. We want to just think about that a bit. We want to think about that even historically, uh, about some of the things that have come throughout the history of the church. And then we want to come back in, in our second point and just contemplate uh, this text that we've just looked at, especially those verses that, that speak to this idea of the incarnation. And, and we want to reflect on this text, given what we've walked through in terms of thinking about Jesus as being truly God and truly man, two natures in, in one person. I said last week that Christians very early on had a clear and concise understanding of who Jesus was. It, it was not as if they were sort of unsure. They were clear about who Jesus was. They had that confession that, that Jesus is God made flesh, that he is Curios uh, Christos, uh, that, that, that he is the Lord, uh, that, that he is truly God and truly man. Uh, but over time, 
objections got raised or, or people tried to define that even even more so than just maybe uh, objections people tried to say things about that, that that began to distort that simple confession and so it was the task of Christians throughout church history especially the first several hundred years of, of church history to just come back again and again and, and try to maybe cl more clearly define that to, to guard it against this error and against that error on that side but what we've seen uh, last week and what we want to reiterate again this week is that the essential biblical confession, and I want to highlight that, that what we're saying here is that this is a biblical confession. Uh, we're, we're looking at this confession, right? But this is just, we think, a statement of what the Bible teaches. The Bible is our only authority. And the essential biblical confession is that Jesus is truly God and truly man. We looked at a couple passages last week, and I want to bring them to your mind once more. 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He, that is God, was manifest in the flesh. He was manifest in the flesh. 1 John 4 tells us this. 1 John 4 verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh truly man in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And then verse 15 of that same chapter, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, truly God, God abides in him and he in God. There in that same passage, we get both of those statements. We must confess that he came in the flesh true flesh, real flesh, true humanity, and that he is the Son of God, true deity, one with the Father. We saw this again uh, as the text that we looked at last week when we finally got around to it. John chapter 1 and that, and that great introduction to, to John's Gospels. In, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on to say in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was in the beginning with God and he was God, true deity. And the word became flesh, true humanity. We see this all the way back in, in the Old Testament in, in one of the uh, prophecies that is often quoted uh, about the coming of our Savior at this time of year when we celebrate Christmas in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born. True humanity. A child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, True Deity. Only God is the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. True deity, true humanity. This was precisely why the Pharisees and the religious people of Jesus' day, this confession, true deity, true humanity, from Jesus' own mouth, is why they hated him and why they sought to kill him. In John chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus says this, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
What, what a statement, what a claim to be one with the Father. Here's this man standing right in front of them, clearly a human being, truly man, and yet he says, I'm one with the Father, true deity. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. You're a man. True humanity. And you're making yourself out to be God. True deity. Truly divine. And that's why they wanted to kill him. That's why they crucified him. Now, they weren't misunderstanding Jesus. Jesus doesn't come back and say, whoa, 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 guys, wait a minute now. I'm not claiming to be God. That's not, that's not what he does at all. In fact, throughout the Gospels, he, he says things oftentimes in sort of a veiled way, but things that are clearly expressions of, of his self-conscious uh, self-identification as being one with God. In fact, in that very passage, he says, I and the Father are one. So the biblical confession is clear. The church early on was, was clear about this confession, yet it was through the fire of controversy that that simple confession, Jesus is Lord, God was made flesh, was clarified and strengthened. People would begin to say things about it and, and they would begin to distort that simple confession and, and, and twist it. And we might just ask the question, why did people get it wrong? And why would be people be tempted today to get it wrong? Well, the reason that they get it wrong and what we need to recognize is that each error concerning the person of Christ is an attempt to make this wonderful mystery easier to understand and believe. Because here we're saying, in one person, two natures, truly divine, tr true humanity. How can that be? We can't understand it. So let me try to make this more simplistic. Let me, let me ma make this in such a way that, that, that maybe it would just be a little bit easier to understand. But you notice in our statement it says, we confess the mystery and wonder. Uh, we're giving sort of the parameters of that mystery, but we are not here saying we can fully comprehend that. We cannot comprehend how in one person there could be two natures, fully divine and fully human. We don't, we don't understand that. And, and so people came along and they attempted, let's make this more simplistic. Let, let's explain this in a way that, that, that makes it maybe a tad bit, still not easily understandable or comprehensible, but maybe a tad bit more believable. Did they get it wrong? That's why they got it wrong. They're trying to make it more believable or a little easier to understand. But how did they get it wrong? Well, what you'll see in every error, every error about who Jesus is, one of two things happens. Either they diminish the true humanity of Christ. He's not truly human in some way. Or they diminish the true deity of Christ. Every error about Christ, about the person of Christ, uh, it, it comes down to one of those two things. Either they diminish, okay, he's not really all the way completely God. He's not true deity. Maybe he's like God. Maybe he's similar to God. Maybe he's a God, but not the God. Uh, but, but it diminishes de deity. Or 
it diminished his humanity. He looked like a man, but he, but he wasn't fully a, a man. And so we just need, we need to recognize those tendencies. What we want to do now is maybe just walk through a few of these. And, and I'm doing this, and I, I'm realizing as, as I was planning to do this, I'm thinking, this is going to be hard. And, and you're going to be tempted to check out and say, look, I didn't come here to go to a history class and, and learn boring historical details. But, but the point of this is, is not to just give you boring historical details, but to help clarify in your mind what is meant when we say that Jesus is truly divine and truly human, two natures in one person. I'm going to throw out names of these heresies to you. But the goal is not for you necessarily to be able to remember them and like you're going to have to take a test like, OK, I'm writing this down. But but it's just in your mind as we walk through these and I explain what they are, uh, essentially you can come back and say, OK, that helps clarify. We're saying, yes, he's truly, completely divine. And yes, he's truly, completely human. So let's run through them and I'll try to run through them quickly. The first that we would contemplate early on heresy was called the Ebionite heresy, the Ebionite heresy, uh, and Michael Horton uh, speaks about this. He says essentially they regarded Jesus as the Messiah, but an exclusively human person who justified himself by the works of the law and leads his followers to do the same. So essentially he was a human being. He kept the law of God. He was an exceptional human being. He stands out among history. No one else is like him as a human being, but he is nevertheless still just a human being. He kept the law of God, and so then we follow his example. We, we look to him, and we try to keep God's law like he kept God's law. He was a, a perfect human, but he was just human. Some of them allowed that he had some kind of miraculous birth. Others discredited that altogether. But either way, whether they agreed to that or not, the, the end result was that he was nothing more than a human being. And it is true that Jesus kept the law of God. It is true that he's our example, but he's so much more than that. He's truly divine. The, the second error is docetism. Docetism. And there's so much more that could be said about e any of these, but I just want to show to you True divinity, true humanity, and every error gets off on one of those two things. Docetism, the, the word dakeo, means to appear. And so this teaching was that the Son of God only appeared to be human. In this error, they said, yes, he's clearly God. He is divine. He's the Son of God, the Word. But, but the Word could not come into a, a sinful world. Human flesh is wicked and evil, and, and, and so God, who is holy and righteous and, and light, he can't come into this kind of darkness. He could not truly take on human flesh without perverting himself, without, without sort of distorting himself, and so he simply appeared to have a body. He appeared, he looked like a human being, but he wasn't really a truly human person. Later on, that was early on in the church, later on this same error came up. Uh, it, it was called the celestial flesh during the time of the Reformation. And this view said, yeah, there was this body, but, but it was a celestial body. It was a body that he came uh, from heaven with. And, and Mary, when he was born, Mary was just kind of like the carrier. Mary, Mary did not give life to him. Uh, Mary was not truly his mother. She just held his body, this celestial flesh that had come from heaven in her body, and then, and then he was born. 
But that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that Jesus really did have a human body. To have a body is part of the essential part of what it means to be human. And since he was truly a human being, that meant that he had a true body. Again, Michael Horton states this. In, in contemporary terms, he, he says, the incarnate God had Mary's genes. He had Mary's genes. He was truly born of Mary. Mary did not give Christ his divine nature. He was preexistent, but she did contribute to his human nature. All the, the variations of this way of thinking deny the true humanity of Christ. And then there's Arianism, which is the, the idea that the Son of God, the, the word that we see spoken about in, in John, this view was that he was not of the same essence or the same substance as uh, the Father, but that he was sort of the first created being. He was a God like God, but God, the Father, had created the Son, and, and later on then he became incarnate. And so Arius is famous for, have, for having said there was a time when he was not. There was a time when he was not, meaning that the Son of God is not eternal, that he came into being when God created him. But, but John is clear. We looked at that last week, didn't we? In the beginning was the Word. When you go back to the beginning, you go back to the period of creation, when things are being created, the Word already existed. He was in the beginning with, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we talked about that last week. I won't go over all that again, but he's co-eternal. He's co-equal. He's consubstantial. And importantly, he's co-creator. In John chapter 1 verse 3, it says all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made, including himself. <laughs> if he was made, then he didn't make everything. There were something, there was something that was not made, that being him. But the Bible is clear in John 1, 3, that he made everything and nothing was made without him making it. The word, the son. One of the things that we see, uh, I'm saying truly divine and truly human, but, but the church was clear to say what we mean by that is that there were two natures, a divine nature and a human nature in one person. Two natures, one person. There were a lot of errors that distorted those two natures and 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 so they would say well he was kind of human but he didn't have a full human nature in this aspect or he was maybe somewhat divine but he didn't have a true divine nature in this way or some of them said you know it was kind of a fusion they the two natures were brought together and so Jesus is just kind of this distinct person almost like Superman that uh, he's a he's a fusion of the two natures uh, into one so Apollinarianism again don't worry about the the names of these uh, they claim that Jesus did not have a human spirit, that the word, this son of God, replaced the human spirit. And so they would think of Jesus almost sort of his body, just this inanimate body. Uh, and, and the word came into uh, the, the, the body of uh, this person, Jesus, and, and gave it life. This may seem small, but listen, if he did not have a human spirit, then he's not human. That's what we mean. Truly, truly human, true humanity. What is true humanity? Well, it means that we have a body and a spirit, a, a human spirit. And so it is with the son of God, with, with Jesus. He, he has a human body and a human spirit. If he didn't have a human spirit, he isn't human. He isn't truly hu human. And this, this is so important. 
Hebrews chapter 2, which we, we've looked at in the past, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power, uh, the power of death, that is the devil. So he shares in our flesh and blood. And then in verse 17 it says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Do you hear that statement? He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to. It was a necessity. It wasn't a, a, a necessity like he, he had to do this just because. He had to do this if he wanted to be our Savior. If he wanted to save humanity, he had to become a human being. And in order to become a human being, he had to take on everything that it means to be a human. Meaning a human will, a human soul, a human body. Every part of Jesus was human. In that sense, every every part of his humanity, or let me say it in, in a better way, he had every dimension, everything that makes us human, he had. There was nothing he was missing. It wasn't like, okay, he had all of this, but yeah, he didn't have a physical body. No, he had a physical body. Or, well, he, he had a physical body, but he didn't have a spirit, or he didn't have a will. No, he had everything that makes us as human beings human. He had it. He was made like us in every respect. And the reason is, it says, so that, he might become a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In order for him to be our sacrifice, a human sacrifice, standing in the place of humanity, he had to stand there. He had to die on that cross as a true human being. Michael Horton says, and this might surprise you, but, but just based on this, listen to what he says. Our salvation depends as much on Christ's identity as the son of Adam, Abraham, and David as on his being eternally begotten of the Father. If he doesn't become truly human, he cannot save us. If, if there's something that's deficient in his humanity, something that is missing, he cannot be our Savior. His being our Savior was dependent as much upon him being the son of Adam, Abraham, and David as the eternal begotten son of of God. Let's come back now. There, there are other errors, but, but we just want to come back now to this text and consider in Philippians chapter 2. And I think when we come here now with, with understanding some of the parameters, some of the definitions of this doctrine, I think we're better equipped to look at this text. This is a key, we would call Christological text, a, a text about Jesus Christ and his person. Who is Jesus? Well, theologians have poured over these verses for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years, right? From, from, the, from the earliest point of the church as theologians, as Christians have studied, who was Jesus? Philippians chapter 2 is one of those texts. John chapter 1 that we looked at, Philippians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, those are essential texts that really help us understand who Jesus is. And when we look at this text, I think what you're going to see is that we see exactly what we've been talking about. True humanity, true divinity. Let's read again at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So, so think the same way that, that Jesus thought. Have the same attitude, the same mindset 
And, and what is that mindset of humility? Well, well, he describes it. It says, who though he was in the form of God, he was in the form of God. So the question is here, does that mean when he says that he's in the form of God, that he only appeared to be God, that he kind of looked like God? Sometimes our, our conception or our understanding of that, what, the way we use the word form, it, it could almost sound like someone kind of like dresses up and looks like somebody. They're in the form of somebody, even though they're not really. But, but here, the way that this word is used is not to just say that he looked like him or, or maybe he appeared to be like him. I, instead, it means that to say that he's in the form of God, it means that the inner substance, that the, that the person that he is, is God. He's in the form of God. There are two clues that help us understand that this is indeed what, what Paul means here when he says that he's in the form of God, that, that the inner substance of who the Son is, is, is the same as the Father. The, the first clue is this, that being in the form of God is paralleled by the very next statement where it says that he had equality with God. Do you see that in verse number six, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now he's saying he was willing to pour himself out. He was willing to take on humanity. But notice in that statement, he's saying essentially, he's affirming that he is equal with God. To be in the form of God, he is equal with God. Bruce Ware just clearly and concisely helps us understand what this means. Nothing is equal to God except God. So, so what this is saying about Jesus is that he's God. To say you're equal to God is to say you are God. To say you're in the form of God means that you are God. Remember what Isaiah says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. That's the book of Isaiah. And now the apostle Paul is saying he's equal with God. He's in the form of God. That must mean that he is God. If Christ merely appeared to be like God, it could not be said that he was equal to God. So we would just ask the question, well, what, in what way is he equal to God? In every way, that's what Paul is saying, in every way he's equal to God. He's equal in his nature? Yes. Is he equal in his power to God the Father? Yes. Is he equal in his holy character? Yes. Any question that you ask about the Son is he equal to the Father? The answer based on this passage is going to be yes. He is equal with God. It's not as though you would be talking to Paul and say, okay, what about, what about this characteristic? Or what about this quality? Or what about this attribute? Is he equal in that? And Paul would say, oh, you know, I didn't think about that one. Actually, in that way, he is not equal to the Father. No, in every way that you can imagine, every attribute, every characteristic, everything that makes God, God, the Son, is equal to him. He's in the very form of God. A second hint that, that helps us understand this is in verse 7 because that same word form is used again in verse number 7. He was in the form of God, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now here, it isn't saying that he just appeared to be a servant, that he looked like a servant, that he had the outward external look of uh, or form of being uh, a servant. No, no. What it's saying here is that he actually became, by in very nature, he became a servant when he took on humanity. One writer said this, Surely 
it is evident that Paul did not mean that Jesus took on merely the outer appearance of a servant, implying that though he looked like a servant, he was not in his own heart and life a true servant. Just the opposite. Jesus took on the inner substance and very nature of what it means to be a servant and to its highest expression. Therefore, Paul's point is clear. In chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus, being in the form of God, exists in the very nature as God with the inner divine substance that is God's alone. He is fully God since he exists in the form of God. This is the witness of the New Testament, true, true, true divinity. Hebrews chapter 1 says that he's the exact imprint of his nature. He's the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that he's the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. He's spiritual. We, we cannot see him, but Jesus comes and he takes on a flesh. He's the image of the invisible God. And it says in verse 19 of Colossians chapter 1 that for in him, that is in the Son, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Everything that makes God who he is dwells within the Son of God. There's, no, there, there's nothing missing. There's nothing deficient there. He is fully God. And again, in the Gospel of John, we've mentioned this several times, but it's, he says, Jesus says of himself, I and the Father are one. There's a singularity there. We are one. And he tells Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I'm one with the Father. There's nothing you're missing. There's nothing about God that is different than me. When you see me, Philip, you have seen the Father. He's very clear about that. But notice the second thing that we see here in, in this text, the true humanity, that Jesus took the form of the servant. Though he was in the very form of God, he took the form of a servant. And we see what that means in this verse. What does it mean that he took the form of a servant? Well, look at verse number 7. He was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. When it says here that he took the form of a servant, he's, it's just a way of describing he took on humanity. He, he didn't stop being God. He, he, he didn't lay aside his deity. He added to that deity, that true and full deity, true and full humanity. He took on. You notice that, just even that expression, he took on humanity. He took the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Notice here it says that he did not count equality a thing, uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he, though he was in the very essence, the very form of God, there was nothing he was missing in, in this deity. He did not grasp that in, in a sense selfishly, just holding on to it and saying, I'm not willing to take on humanity. I'm not willing to go to save them. I'm, I'm in this position of, of perfect fellowship, perfect communion, sharing the very nature of God the Father, and therefore I don't want to go do this menial task of saving these people. No, he didn't grasp to his deity in that way. Instead, it says here that he emptied himself. Now that's a very important word and a very important uh, concept. What does it mean that he emptied himself? When you read that, you, you might stop and think for a second, oh, may, maybe he means by that that he stopped being God, that he emptied himself. He poured out 
his divinity, that he wasn't, when he came to this earth, and he wasn't truly God in, in the flesh because he poured it out. But that's not uh, what that means at all. First of all, that doesn't make logical sense. If you have a being, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who in the essence of his being is God, how do you stop being who you are? You can't just pour out who you are. It's not as if there's one part of who he is that was divine and he could get rid of that and pour that out and then he could come and take on humanity. No, no. In the very essence of who he is, he's divine. He can't pour that out. It doesn't even make logical sense. But, but this word emptied himself is just simply an expression. We, we use it. It's an expression of total self-sacrifice. It could be said of a mother, couldn't it? that she just pours herself out for her children. She pours herself out for her children. What do we mean by that? She, she stops being who she is? She gives up the essence of her identity? No, no, no. We're just saying that's an expression to say all that she is, she gives to her children. That's, that's what we mean. Or, or we could say the, the teacher gives everything she's got for her students. No, she doesn't stop being or give up her the essence of her identity. No, no we're saying all that she is, she, she, she yields in, in an act of service to her students. In neither case does it infer that the person ceases to be who they are. It is an expression which denotes total self-sacrifice. And so the meaning here is that the Son of God, being in the very form of God, completely God, in every way that God is God, He was God, and in that form, he completely gave himself over to the task of saving his people. He didn't stop being divine. As the divine second person of the Trinity, he stepped into history and he poured himself out for you and for me. He gave himself fully over to the task of saving us, though he was in this exalted place, needing nothing, he, he was in, like God in every way, including his independence. God doesn't need us. Uh, he's not lonely. There's nothing that we add to him that he's missing. And yet he was willing to step out of that and pour himself out for you and for me. But what we notice here then is that it's by adding. He emptied by adding. Look at verse 7 one more time. To verse number seven, he was in the form. Well, he emptied himself rather by taking the form of a servant. What what does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, he emptied himself by taking something on. It's subtraction by addition. He he emptied himself by taking on humanity. He doesn't give up his divinity. He he maintains that divinity, that divine nature, but he adds to it a human nature. He was emptied by adding again in Hebrews chapter 2. He understood that what was a necessity for him to save us was that since we share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The truly divine, fully divine second person of the Trinity took on humanity, adding it to who he was. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. What this means then, as we bring this to a conclusion this morning, is that Jesus, as he lived this life, he lived it as a true man. As far as his life on this earth, 
from his conception to his death, from the womb to the tomb, he lived it according to a true human nature. He didn't cease to be divine. He didn't give up his eternality. He didn't give up his omnipotence. He didn't cease in his divine nature to uphold all things by the word of his power. Yet as far as his life on this earth, he lived it according to a true human nature. And I think sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we, we I think, could have the misconception of thinking that he's kind of walking around like Superman with, with all of these superpowers, his omnipotence and all of these things. Although he retained those as he lived his human life on this earth, he did not exercise those in this life. He took on a true human nature and lived according to that nature the same way that you and I live in this world. He lived with a human nature. That means he was tired. It, it, it means although he was omnipotent, right? The Bible says in the Old Testament, God says, I don't weary, I don't get tired. But in his human nature, as he lived here on this earth, the second of the per person of the Trinity got tired. He was hungry. He was weak. He was sad. He was betrayed. He was cold. He was dirty. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with much grief. He was dependent upon the Spirit for guidance and power. He lived his life, went through temptation, faced the cross, did miracles as a man. In his humanity, he limited access to his divine power and lived as you and I. He didn't make use of his omnipotence. You remember when he's on the cross, it says he could have called uh, 72,000 angels, right? 12 leagues of angels. But he doesn't do that because he's living as a man on this earth. Jesus knows the pain of death. He knows what it means to weep over the death of a loved one. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He, he's experienced what it means to be wrongly accused. He was truly human. He knows and can sympathize with us. This morning, I hope we can confess that. That's what I would just encourage, and I hope we're growing in our ability to understand who is this person. Let me just invite you, and I'm going to ask Daniel to come, but I'll invite you all to go ahead and stand. And as we close here, just the, the, the closing here, it's, it's up on the screen there. And we just want to, as, as a response to this message and what we've seen in God's word, we want to confess this together. We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. 
Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise His holy name forever. Amen.